0: For me it's not just about throwing away the 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 boots with braces and it's and it's not just about the posture it's about the sensory information that you receive and we often forget that you know these amazing sensorial beings right and so um you have just as many senses in your feet as you do in your hands so up to two hundred thousand extra receptors reside in your feet so that's one thing so the more information you put between you and your foot as in the more rubber Um, the more desensitized that information becomes. So therefore, the calculations that your movement brain can make are slightly compromised. And if you think back to when I said that running is biomechanics, of running really is about this understanding the forces that are involved to be able to make the appropriate shapes. So you have kinetics, which are the forces, and then kinematics are the shapes I make due to those forces.
1: Welcome back to this week's podcast with a genuine superhero and someone that... um, is remarkably inspirational in so many different ways. I think what this summarizes to me is about evolutions, constant growth, and connecting in with our inner mammal to become better versions of ourselves. Yeah, Tony's someone who who we've admired for years. We've hung out with him loads of times, spent lots of time with him, with his family, with his kids, with everything. And he's inspired me for years. He really, really has in so many aspects of my life. And this was, I felt, just an introduction because there's so many areas I feel we could go with Tony. And today, like literally, we've just finished the podcast and I can't wait to go for a run and practice nasal breathing. And I know that I need to start squatting more. And like, really, there was so many take homes from it that just. Yeah, the essence of this podcast to me was about connecting more with our physiology, squatting more, moving more, introducing more play And, and, and even really just as a like nowadays we spend so much time in chairs, on laptops, on screens and all these various things and what Tony is talking about is almost like an antidote that our posture is changing as a species because of how we're living and he's talking about movement and our just how he talks about it is so elegant and inspiring and as I said, from just this conversation I feel greatly inspired so I really hope you feel as inspired as we do from this conversation yeah for for anyone who's interested in running this is so relevant and you've always wondered why you're getting sore knees you're getting sore hips and how you just want to learn how to run properly because we're often taught how to swim we're taught how to ride a bike but you're never taught how to run it's just assumed oh you know how to do that whereas Tony gets into the technique explains it and it's just it's Fabulous. Just before we give you the podcast with Tony, I just want to say massive shout out to all the lovely comments and the feedback you've given on the previous episodes. Big shout out to Emma Stokes on Instagram. That's Emma underscore Stokes, one, two, three. That said, possibly the best podcast I've ever listened to. That's about the John McAvoy story. Phenomenal. Thank you, Emma. Yeah. And just really, thanks for everyone who's been sharing and giving us feedback because it really gives us inspiration to keep going. And if you've got any thoughts on other guests you'd like us to get to, hit us up on social. Instagram's the ED, uh, send us a DM, and uh, thanks for subscribing. So our, our friend Tony Riddle, I remember when Tony first came over to do a talk in Clend- our cafe in Clondalkin, and I remember, you know, Tony, the natural lifestyle, always had a beard, always had a cool top. Nah, Tony was raw, Tony was wild, and Tony was always so inspirational and impressive. And I remember the week, the month previously, we had Dr. Alan Desmond, a front super polished, you know, uh, clinical gastroenterologist, just super cool dude. And um, Tony came to do a talk and there was an audience of about, yeah, I think there's about 50 to 100 people coming. And I was kind of like nervous. I was like, okay, here's Tony. I, I, I hope, um, and typical in Tony's style, Tony stood up there and the very first thing Tony said, everyone was sitting down now. And Tony just said, can everyone put your chairs to the back of the room and sit on the floor? And from that moment on, like, Everyone was in Tony's hand and just such an inspirational. After that day, I was like, Tony, you're like a cult leader. I just want to follow you. Like, you're just phenomenal. Um, so it's a real honor to have you here today, Tony. And I'd love to just, first of all, to give a bit of context in terms of your backstory. Because like for many people, the life you're living now can seem very inspirational, aspirational, and a long way to from where many of us are living today. Can you just give a bit of context about your backstory? Because it's phenomenal.
0: Yeah, I, I well, I'm known as the natural lifestylist, Which quick intro to that is just I find ways of living that are more in sync with our human biology. And I think beneath that is then why do, why do I need to do that? You know, and I've gone from being uh, a child born with club feet um, to a barefoot endurance athlete that's breaking records. You know, so what? It's quite a long story, that isn't it? It's like it doesn't just happen overnight, and it's. A lot of deconstruction and dismantling of the old self within that. So for me, I, you know, I guess there was lots of trauma involved around that that birth and going into plaster cast boots for three months, 12 weeks, and then being put into braces, so boots with braces, like the real Forrest Gump story.
1: Club club feet for anyone listening is they're kind of when your feet are turned in, isn't it? It's more really than that. So
0: that's just turning your feet in. Club feet is when they're supinated, so you're literally on. It's like you'll you'd be on the edges of your feet, the outside of your feet. You know, that's wow. a club foot. So that's... So
1: could you even walk?
0: Well, I was a baby anyway. But okay, so yes, yeah. i was a baby up until. I mean, that would have been phenomenal. Imagine <laughs> that. I came out, I was like, dum, 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 dum. I was definitely, definitely going to be an endurance athlete. This. Time. So. um... Yeah, I guess, and then went through this process. Of my mum used to say that she'd take us take me to the hospital every week, and um, it would be traumatizing for her. She'd be crying, you know, every week. She'd they'd have to put me through the so, thing. You know, I guess there would have been some screaming from me at the same time. Right? So I think that's kind of in the origins with me of what's led me down that path of wanting to rewild. And part of that story's been it wasn't until very many years later that I was in a ceremony and these boots came up in my mind so I kind of parked it for 40 something years and then suddenly these these boots with braces suddenly appeared oh my god I was born with club feet of course and you know it was just suddenly this idea of losing the shoes because before that I'd been really into barefoot running and living this wild lifestyle and getting outside and what 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 was driving that and I think that's that's possibly where it was it's almost like the trauma of that situation perhaps but but to, but to get to that point I had to go through all the other symptoms of that trauma so you know I was just pro- I dipped, well within schooling environments almost like ADHD tapping looking out the window you know all the things associated really with that early trauma that comes in in those first three years let's say they say like last trimester plus three years a thousand days and so along with that I then found myself just in trouble in school rather than you know getting complimented with school it's very different situation couldn't wait to get outside couldn't wait to run around and then we were living in in a concrete existence in a in a village you know the only bit of green space was the park opposite and that was full of well people that you wouldn't really want to associate yourselves with you know they were like lying around on the benches boozing and smoking weed and stuff like that but we were young kids and our parents didn't want us involved with that situation i guess so early so we found one space and it was known as the, it was kind of our wreck, but it was known as the gravel pits. And it was a place that, no, you don't go there because this might happen. This might happen. you know, the terror of parents, their kids being left alone in these spaces. And to get there, we used to have to clamber over a bridge. And um, it was a rail bridge with the intercity trains blasting by underneath, like, bam, bam. We'd be like going across on the edges with our fingertips and our toes to get to the other side. And then we'd be in nature, like proper nature, as right like, punctuated in amongst the gray concrete existence so for me that again that was another time if i look back to when ah that was when i was possibly at my most happiest you know but then going in then into a schooling environment later on where it wasn't cool to be doing that kind of thing it was more cool to be one of the kids smoking the weed so it suddenly became that for me i was drawn to that kind of behavior it was a social tribe that i i was more successful in than sitting in a classroom studying because i can to keep myself focused enough to be able to do that it's very much hyper focus all over the place I want to be outside oh I can listen to this conversation oh, that's happening in the room rather than be able to keep my attention on what's being taught at the front of the room and then I guess that then led to more behavior more behavior and involvement with the police and just in and out of trouble as a kid and then to escape that I decided I join the army the army became like a place, for me, a place for me to go and, I guess, express my physicality, you
1: know. Was it drugs or was it drink or what kind of was it where they were just kind of means of escaping the kind of. Drink like, and drugs. The... I
0: think by the time I was, by the time I joined the army, I think I tried every drug there was I'd already, it was already, everybody, you know, it's already been in me, you know, um, boozing. Yes, I started boozing really, but drink came into my life very, very early and smoking came into my life very early. Um, weed came into my life very early. Ecstasy, LSD, and then ecstasy and LSD, and then cocaine and ketamine, all these things they were around. Brown, or as we know it was heroin, it was like anything, anything that we had around us, you know. And I guess again, escapism, trying to what, deconstruct maybe the environment I'm growing in, but now I understand it more around trauma. It seems to be that it was that early stuff I was I was I was probably trying to deconstruct or dismantle somehow.
1: And how how did the idea of the army come along? Was that just like did that seem like, oh my God, this is your dad kind of might have thought this is the only saving for this man. He needs discipline.
0: He didn't say that like that's what you need to go and do, but I had a cousin who was in the RAF and my dad was like, Oh, he's doing really well in the RAF. Maybe you should consider something like that. And um I tried. So I went, Yeah, that's a great idea. I'll go and I'll go, I'll go and try the RAF. And my dad had always said, Oh, I really wish I'd joined the army. And I think there was part of that in me that you know my dad was one of those dads who worked very hard he had a business was very rarely home and so for me it was like oh yeah maybe it'll make him proud if i go yeah maybe there was i guess there was that kind of conversation that internal dialogue going on at the time so i went to the ref and i tried to join and, and they just know you're too young um, come back in a year's time but the army recruitment center was next door so I just walked out that building into the next one just signed up the first <laughs> thing I could sign up for and, yep, been. and I arrived home and I was like oh guess what I've just joined the army and they were like what you know that, that kind of astonishment and that's I, I think I signed up at 17 and, and was in by the age of 18 wow. uh, so I, I, I you know again it doesn't mean you're a mature masculine at that stage. You're still a boy, really, aren't you? But you're almost like propelled into this masculine world, you know, that that environment very early.
1: And and what is, like, like my only understanding of the army is from watching movies and kind of going, okay, yeah, left, right, left, right, you know, like, and doing press-ups and... Make yes sure sir. no sir, you know, make your...
0: There is lots of that, that does happen, it does exist, right? Of course you're marching, you you know, you have to, but there's there's lots of breaking down of the old again. It's like breaking down of the, the boy and then building you up into someone that can, of course, go into action. I think mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? You know, but um, within that, the, I think the benefits I, I feel you come away with, with anything, is the discipline. You know? There's so much discipline in there but not enough for me, you know, I, I kind of, um, we were, it was one of, one of the days in there, we were in a holding station waiting to be posted. And I was in there for a year. So it was like a year holding station done with your basic training. You're waiting to get posted and we spent a year in this place. It's like so boring, man. I mean, everyone's in the same situation. You just go, you go and do, you sign up for drill in the morning, then you go and have brekkie. And then that was it basically in the next drill session. Then you go and do this. And it was just like eating bit of bit of PT in, in the process. That was it. And so I had my new my new Ford Fiesta XR2 that I was really, really proud of. You know, it's my first proper car. And, um, there was five of us and we were skiving, which is also known as AWOL. But, you know, in, in that immature brain that's still only 18, it's like skiving. Oh, we would be all right. And we just give the guard a nod. And the guards are all doing the same thing as well, of course, aren't they? Because it's just a holding unit. And off we blasted into the town. And um, I was overtaking like a parcel force van that was stopped and was dropping something off at one of the post boxes. And, and I just overtook it and shot up a hill in my XR2 that was bright red and had ridiculous acceleration, blah, blah, blah. You can imagine, right? What a story. And the parcel force van s- steered right and just whipped the back of my car out. And it flipped, And I ended up on the roof and sliding on the roof for like 120 foot and nearly hit someone on the side of the road. and. Um, and in the process, I put my hand up through the, what was what I thought was to protect myself with the roof and it went straight through the sunroof and I severed through a finger. And so I ended up in hospital. So, um, but immediately from there, I went back to base. And instead of being like, oh yeah, even, oh, Tony, you know, you've crashed your car. You're, You know, this is the car you've been so proud of, this XR2 that you polished every day and you spent every bit of penny you had on it. Um, and we appreciate you've just come out of hospital and you nearly hit someone. You must be quite traumatized by the experience. No, I didn't get any of that. It was in jail. So you're straight away in jail. You know? And then if you think the discipline within the army is disciplined, then wait until you get into that situation. And so I, my love for the army, my love for the army left at that stage. It was kind of, it was, it was almost like, look, it was almost like someone had just given me this wake up. And I'd gone, oh, my God, the army barmy, where you can be kind of intoxicated by the experience had it had been lifted, you know. So from that point, I got I started to get involved with the same behavior as I was trying to escape from to get in the army. So in came the drink and drugs again, you know, it's just one of those things that I I think maybe even the trauma of the accident, perhaps something like that, maybe it triggered.
1: And this, at the, at the, at this stage you're out of the, so you, you got put in jail because you were there was some bad driving or something or what so you AWOL, so you're because you are with leave and
0: then you've had a car accident so it's just oh, it's just the behavior around that you know you've brought shame on um your unit and everything else that comes with that you've been A well. you've had this car accident you've nearly hit someone so it's a, it's not you know it's um a lot wrapped up in that I guess
1: and then after that, you you left the army, or you got kicked, discharged, or whatever. And then I'm still
0: in the army at this stage. When I start, I start descending into the same kind of behaviours to pacify, I guess, my unhappiness at that stage. You know. And then um, I would find myself going home. So instead of staying in the unit, I'd, I'd go. I'd be home at weekends, and I'd start then mixing in the same behavior in the same tribe, that really, you can't have both those lifestyles. They just, they don't work together. So my resentment then started to turn towards the army. And eventually I just—I had to give notice, but it meant giving a year. You have to wait a year then to get out. Wow. So it's a year of, but not only then a year, you're, you're then a year of giving notice in something, which means you're then out. You're almost like an outcast, aren't you? Of course, you know, so it's a wow. tough time for me there. And then when I came out, of course, I, I mean, where am I then? I'm completely lost, right? So, um,
1: and you're like, you're like 22 then or 21 or something. Yeah, right?
0: 22. And then, and then he, I'd say even more lost, really. Just again, it was a year of not finding myself, just losing myself, I guess, further. And then someone just, you know, I, I was still heavily influenced by my physicality. I'd be going to the gym, I'd still train, I'd still be involved with that and was in great shape. I was almost like, I was like a bodybuilder at that stage. I was like, 13 and a half stone into protein shakes and pasta and um,
1: chicken breast
0: and chucking weights around, you know. And um, one of my cousins then said, Oh, Tony, you, you know, you're in great shape. You thought about becoming a personal trainer. It's like, Yeah, you know, just maybe, maybe. No, I really think you'll be great at it, man. You look great. You have a passion for that, that work. Why don't you just have a look at it? And it's, it started something. Mm-hmm. And I, Went off and I did the first one. I did like an intense course, you know, in six week programs to become a personal trainer. But it was very different then. It was like level one, level two. Um, I'd say almost like the level of they are now is more like a fitness instructor when you leave it. But whereas back then it was like really quite intense. And um, I managed to land a really a great position in a personal training um, studio rather than a big gym. And her name was Linda Mosley who ran it. She was... Um, a personal trainer to like uh, premiership footballers and was way ahead of the games involved in the American College of Sports Medicine. There wasn't any resistance machines. It was all, you had to work with your body weight or you had free weights. Um, And it kind of just like evolved quite quickly within that and then found Pilates and then found Pilates mat work because most of the clients that I'm coaching they are over 40, most of them are women because it was in an area where the men were commuting into the city, so I w- I was working with housewives who were like forty something. had no interest in, the, well, they might have been interested in the body builder physique, but they had no interest in the bodybuilding approach, right? So it then it then meant that I, I just found very different approaches. That Pilates came into it, Pilates mat work came into it, and then my very same cousin. He said, "Well, do you want to get involved with personal training?" I had a Pilates studio and said, "Do you want maybe come in have a look, see what you think." um so it became a step for me and then pilates then became this thing where it's like we were very we were almost like um there was only a few studios even in london at that stage there were two actually and we had this form of prescriptive pilates so you'd look at someone's posture type let's say and you prescribe certain pilates movements rather than just the whole repertoire it was certain movements from the repertoire understand pilates is like 600 odd movements within that repertoire and then i started to i was where there maybe two days a week and then in the personal training studio five days a week so i was really into it it's like seven day weeks for me and cycling like 16 miles to get to the personal training studio so i think it just helped with that having that addictive personality at that stage you know it helps doesn't it and then with the pilates studio and it just suddenly started to take off and the Personal training studio realised that, and they tried to entice me back in by, yeah, you know, you know, I think we're just going to make you freelance now rather than be on the books. We can see you excel at this. The clients love you, and this is an opportunity to really make it and build a business this way, you know. So I built a successful business there, but then the Pilates studio started to do the same. It started to take off for me, so I made my first move into London at that stage. And then from Pilates, within a year of that studio, I'd set up my own practice. I had a practice within the. At the end of the year, personal training, Pilates, one-to-ones, um, small groups.
1: And you're you're about twenty-six or twenty-seven or, or twenty-seven
0: at, at that stage. Twenty-seven, my first, my first studio, my first business, like really oh, first Tony. taste of success. Yeah, or, well, this is it. And you found like, something. Well, I wasn't a successful self. I still had because I hadn't, I hadn't deconstructed, dismantled it, all that stuff in the past. It was still there. So my pacifying wants, whenever there was a trigger or an emotional response coming in, it was still back to booze and drugs. You know, still there. But this, but the facade of the personal trainer and the, the passion was there. Everything was there, but there were still those things that were driving me to, um, I guess, again lose lose myself within drinking drugs. You know.
1: So, so you, you still had a kind of almost the obsessive personality of just addictive personalities of just go, 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 go. But you'd found something which was kind of, you know, was giving you meaning and purpose and pride, you know. Purpose, to- I guess
0: the purpose, yeah. And it was something that I, you know, I'd always had this att- attract, attraction to that physicality, that physical approach. It was always there, you know. And as time went by, it was getting more, I guess, more and more refined. And we met you know, through those Pilates days, you know, I had, I I was married, I was married to a woman called Katie at that stage. We kind of, we, and we were probably the worst people for one another. She was in, it was just, yeah, it was just, it was just a disaster basically. Um, the wrong two people really to make a marriage. That Yeah, it was, it was, um, one of those toxic relationships where suddenly you're really addicted to it and it's hard to get away from, but it happened. And, um, if it hadn't happened then i would you know i would have never met katarina so I'm, I'm forever grateful for that relationship too you know it's one of those that um happened for me not to me i guess
1: Ah, uh, good one you know good one i so like one. i like that line lots of, forgiveness,
0: that. lots of forgiveness in that one but we um but post that i then i let my studio go it was kind of i had that relationship and then and the marriage in my studio were kind of one, it, it felt like, and I had to let it go. And I took on a much bigger practice in the end, um, with six practitioners, um, all reformer equipment based, much bigger project. <clears> that was in a big health club, quite successful, and um, and that's where I met Caterina. She was a receptionist on the desk there um, at the main gym, and I had a rented space in there with my own reception. And there was this beautiful woman working at the reception. I was like, oh, who's that? her name's Catherine. she's no because i was like, straight over okay um can you can you get me a piece of paper and a pen and she was like yeah yeah okay yeah and she came back and said like, right can you just write your number down i'll tell you to dinner this evening so that was like, oh <laughs> <laughs> and then within that time frame we also met this amazing track and field coach his name was professor nicholas romanoff and he was a track and field coach in the soviet era and as a track and field coach he he re- recognized there was a specific posture that everyone went to when they were running and he named it the pose and it's essentially when we have the appropriate shape to deal with the forces that are involved with running so ground reaction forces like gravity and ground reaction forces and that it would then make you more efficient and minimize the risk of injury so we were like wow this stuff's amazing and then i i studied and really become a main mentor but i also become one of the only six pose movement specialists there were on the planet still at right but it went beyond running it meant you could have this application this this lens of how to assess all movement and minimize the risk of injury and make it more efficient and and so what were we doing we realized that the running style he was looking at was the observation that you can make in nature these amazing like indigenous tribes that are famous for running right persistent hunting And they had this specific posture, but what made it difference between the difference between what Nicholas was seeing and what the indigenous tribes were doing? The indigenous tribes were barefoot, whereas Nicholas had this posture, but he hadn't made the the connection between being barefoot and the posture. So suddenly you're teaching him footwear, and we were like, oh wow, look at this. If we remove the footwear, we get we get a completely different um relationship because then we're opening up the senses on the ground as well as building the superstructure. And that's kind of the, the explosion of barefoot running, the actual technique of barefoot running. So we were like pioneers around that and then started to see, well, if that's running, what about all the other movements? What's, what are all the other movements that we can be doing? And there was a guy at the time called, well, he still is now, but of course at that time, his name is Erwan Lacour, And um, he now has a sister called MoveNap. As he was growing it, we stumbled across this video where he was in Corsica and he was moving through this incredible landscape, like jumping over trees, picking things up, and doing muscle ups on rocks. And we were like, wow, who's this guy? You know, it's this incredible. Look. And so we met and we had this through Wild Fitness, this company we were all associated with at the time. erwan came in to do a delivery, um, a talk, a workshop. And we're all hanging out for the day and suddenly we found that we're in Primrose Hill with our tops off, just in our shorts, like crawling around and doing all this mad stuff that just everyone was staring at. But it was the parents like walking the kids away as if to say, who are these crazies? But the kids really wanting to get involved. So they'd never seen adults moving or behaving like this before.
1: And was this, was this about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, right? like this, this, is, this
0: is Yeah, this is just before Lola, really. So actually, we're now looking at 12 Ten. years ago, I guess.
1: Right? Wow, okay.
0: And so at that point, that became movement for me. It was like, wow, okay, but this isn't just the way he's moving. I need to apply Nicholas's pose to what he's doing. You know, like there's a uh, way... And Nicholas,
1: he... Nicholas's pose, just to so understand, it's more like like I remember when we, we did running with you and it was kind of, you talked about, you know, you've got to stack your head and your shoulders above your hips and you want your feet kind of land. This was in terms of running and in terms of Nicholas's pose thing, it, like it's like a super pose, like I'd love to learn a super pose.
0: It's, 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 a super pose is a great man. Here's one I've got my hands on my hips. And,
1: yeah.
0: But it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's the same, it's the same idea. That's where it came from. That's where the origins are with Nicholas's pose. It's about having the head, the chest and the pelvis stacked. And the idea is that when we run, we're falling, we're not pushing. People have this perception that we have to push ourselves along and they chase their heads. But if you chase your head, you have to keep stepping ahead of you. Because if you don't, you fall over because the head is a huge weight. But if you keep the head up and the chest up, and you just keep that column as it is. And you have a slight lean with all of it, with the head, the chest, and the pelvis, everything leans at the same time. Imagine you, were like, you had some cling film in front of you. And you just gently lean into it it has a certain amount of giving it right yeah can you imagine that you're just leaning mm. into it you want to maintain that and to maintain it you just keep pulling your feet underneath you so you're basically always falling and just catching your weight just underneath you with your feet that's the concept
1: yeah i, I remember doing uh running with you and it was a huge realization for me that i, I guess i had been kind of taught to spring that running it was very much yeah. about it it was almost like a jump whereas you approached it from a very different perspective. It was the first time I ever thought that, no, let gravity do the work. All you're doing is lifting your leg and then gravity brings it back down and just lift it. So you're, it's the other approach, which I thought was fascinating and very efficient.
0: Yes, exactly. It's because it's about efficiency. So if you think of, um, again, this is going back into natural movement, what we're observing or what we observe in nature again, it's very different to what we have in our modern environment, our urbanite environment. It's because was it, all about efficiency. That's the point you're hardwired not to burn too much fuel to preserve energy right and minimize the risk of injury and if you're born into a tribe that's that's all they've known that's all they do and they all run the same they all do the same thing that's the point you know because they've only ever observed it and we learn through observation more than anything and so if you if you see people um, pushing along the road or you've grown up in a school environment where you're taught to run in a certain way that's the way you learn to run right but running is a skill and it involves a technique, a physiology, and a mind, like any other technique. It's just we're very rarely taught the technique in running. We're taught how to look at our heart rate, blood pressure, and everything else, but not, ah, oh, this is your posture. This is how you pull. And these are the mechanics of it. And that's biomechanics. And biomechanics is like this study exploration into gravity and ground reaction forces, and then the muscles and tendons that you should be using to support that system.
1: I always love the example that you were saying that, you know, humans, after kind of 10-15 years of running or jogging they typically they'll get you know maybe they'll get sore knees or they get sore shin splints and you often kind of gave the analogy that humans were designed to run and des- were kind of designed to run long distances too and it's seldom if you look to the natural world a fish kind of after 10 years of swimming kind of goes oh no my tail doesn't my fin doesn't work now I'm, I'm you know I'm, 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 I don't swim anymore and I kind of the, the idea of if people are taught to run efficiently and appropriately you don't get injured and I thought that was amazing
0: Yeah, and there's some great stats there in American College of Sports Medicine. It's like seventy to eighty percent of runners will give up through injury, right? Well, how's that possible if that's what we've always done? That shaped us. It even shaped our whole physiology, you know. Like ninety-five percent of our existence has been, you know, of a certain evolution, and now we find ourselves in this modern arrangement of things, you know. I think running's a classic example, but there's other movement modalities, you know, that also that applies to. So the way we crawl, climb, lift, carry, throw, defend, swim, balance—they're um, all natural movements, all natural movement practices. You know, that's that's a bit of movement in there. But there was an original practice called Method Naturel, which was Georges Hibault, a French marine officer in the 1800s, that went to all indigenous populations and saw how amazing these specimens were. They had a great physicality, and how was it that you know? And then studied ah, oh, they had all these they had all these movement modalities. And that's where the modern day assault course comes from. It's that George Herbert's era that's looking, and parkour has its origins in that. Parkour is just an urban expression of how we move in nature. And MoveNat is the natural example of parkour, and that's kind of where it had its origins as well. So it's basically getting people from that urban environment and allowing them to explore their physicality in nature. But there has to be a transition, like a rewilding experience. And that's where my work started to really come in. It's like, how do you get the urbanite to move like that as a natural being, as an indigenous person, a wild person in nature, rather than just an urbanite, compromised by the chair sitting culture, trying to perform the same task because it's not the same and it will become inefficient. And it doesn't minimize the risk of injury that way. Sometimes people become even more vulnerable
1: and the benefits, just so I understand it. So, like, so you had a, a deep root. You, you came from the Pilates, kind of personal training, move MoveNAT, this um, runner, pose the, yeah. the incredible, yeah, Pose method. you'd all this kind of routing that kind of teed you up towards kind of going, okay, like this natural movement. So the natural progression was to kind of go, like, how do we move more naturally? And first for say, like, I, I imagine, like, when you say urbanite, you're referring to most of us because we all live in houses and we... You know, we sit yeah. in chairs, we spend a lot of our times on screens, and the benefit of moving more naturally is just that our body's designed, like there's much less risk of injury and let's, we're gonna feel better.
0: There's so much to it. Let's say um let's look at the Hadza for a moment, right? So the Hadza sit for ten and a half hours a day. Like Hadza. we're we're the Hadza tribe, right? So we're led to believe that we um we we are sitting is the new smoking, right? We sit for 10 and a half hours, right? It's really compromising. It's just the way we sit. So the difference in those two experiences, one is indigenous and, and one is an urbanite experience, right? a modern human experience in a modern environment. And it has a chair. Whereas if you interact with the ground through various different rest positions, each one of those rest positions is like a micronutrient or a micro skill of the macro skill of standing up. Standing up is a micro skill of the macro skill of walking. Walking is a micro skill of the macro skill of running, right? So we have kind of, they're, they're, they're always in this relationship. It's a symbiotic relationship between interacting with the ground and how you stand. So by interacting with the ground, we get to nourish and, and mobilize and understand body weight. But there's also a metabolic cost for being on the ground. So if, um, if I squat, my body weight is still on my feet. It's the equivalent of me standing up. It's the same body weight. So I'm always still standing, but I'm in a squat position, which is restful. I'm not talking like the reps and set squats, which is an exercise in the West. I'm talking about the restful position. It's a rest position. So if anything, if you were to get a squat, try and get it to a rest where it feels comfortable where you could literally do anything in it, including pooping. That's how they designed it.
1: This is a flat, this is a flat-footed squat, like just yeah, and the fact how- that- how-
0: well, it's just the origins. It's, it's how we learn to stand. If you look at a toddler, they have these multiple different movements on the ground. and go, wow, look at them. That's how, we, that's how we move if we don't get compromised by the chair, because it's how indigenous people move on the ground, just like the toddler, from one rest position to the next. And then we get to the prize position, which is a squat. And then from the squat, we can stand up. So someone asked me, how do you run for 10 hours a day? Right. Well, firstly, learn to stand for 10 hours a day that's an endurance event but beneath that mix it up with squatting and standing because between the two squatting nourishes the ankle joint the knee joint the hip hip joint relationships for running it gives you the appropriate dorsiflexion um, in the ankle which is necessary for when you land underneath the body it primes all the lower extremities primes all the loading points of the feet primes the hips builds the posture and the posture for when you're standing up so it's all within it, you know, and that's the difference. That's just that's just the micro movement of how it looks in nature compared to how it looks in the modern environment.
1: And can I can I bring that back, Tony? Because what you're saying is phenomenal. And for anyone listening there who's kind of going, that all makes total sense. How do I apply this? And there were a number of things that you were doing that I thought was, you know, very practical. There was a period where you were squatting for, I can't remember how, maybe it was 10 minutes a day. And every time you'd squat, you'd set a timer. 30 minutes a day. Was, ter- was it 30 minutes a day you were doing it for? And the benefit of that was kind of one to kind of practice getting more comfortable in this rest position. But nowadays it seemed like yoga, you know, or it's a scene like a stretching exercise, but it's such a basic function of human physiology. And the more we can be in connection with our physiology, the more, you know, adaptive and connected we are. Is that the kind of the idea? Yeah. I I
0: mean, if we just go down the path of, physicality we don't forget the physiology you know to 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 reach like this emotional well-being we have to satisfy our needs and so the so to satisfy needs we have to look at physical social and spiritual needs to reach you know emotional well-being so within our physical needs Movement is a physical need, and beneath movement is what we've discovered: there's running, right? But beneath running, there's walking, or standing, or squatting. They're all physical needs. So even a squat, exactly. Now we're off. Now we're off the chairs,
1: right? It's <laughs> almost like it's almost like a hierarchy of movement. Like it really is. Where running is the ultimate movement expression of modern man, in a sense, like you were saying. And then like walking is the next skill, and then squatting, and then you know being able to sit in a. Not in a chair. And really. is ca- that right? can I just say one other thing? Like for anyone listening, Tony, a number of years ago, I remember you cutting up furniture in your home and that you wanted to start as your family to start living a more ground dwelling experience, which sounds weird to most people. But the whole idea was that you, you had to squat. You were on the ground more and you were engaging so much of your hips and your knees and just you were being more physical.
0: Yeah, I, I it basically I, I had origins in Pilates and Pilates is very much about posture, wasn't it? And we had this, then we moved into this gym and we opened up this big gym, which is about that. We brought a natural movement philosophy into the gym. And at that time we were setting timers and saying, right, squatting for 30 minutes a day and asking people to do the same incrementally throughout their day. Then I'd arrive home and we'd have like, still have a sofa in the house, you know, and it was like, well, this is, this just isn't authentic. I mean, how can I possibly be putting this information into my kids? Have my kids sitting on a sofa compromising their posture when in adult years, this is what I'm dealing with daily. You know, I'm dealing with the symptoms of a compromised environment. That's the clients that would come and see me with all the same issues. It's always um, issues in the knees, the hips, the ankles and the necks. And they were all the sites that would be complemented by taking a practice back to the ground and living on the ground. So, you know, not only do you gain the mobility, but also what you start to see, which is really interesting. We start to rewire and reignite, let's say, the very structures that made us who we are today, like the sapience and so the big powerful glutes that we have came through from being bipedal, but also what came before being bipedal were all the rest positions on the ground that enable us to stand up. So if you want to get, you know, the physiology that nature has uniquely assigned for you, let's say, right, then get your movement back to the way it was in nature, because that's how you get natural physiology. Other than that, we can end up with, areas that might be more active than others, and the areas that might be more stagnant than others. So it's about igniting that more innate system. And once we get that, we get the wild kind of physiology that much more, and, and much more adaptive. You
1: know? and, and that that sounds like, that sounds amazing. Like, I immediately want that. And I'm sure most people listening and go, that sounds great. Like, how do I get that? Like, how do, like, I've got couches, I've got chairs, I sit in a chair, I've got a laptop. Like, what the hell do I, I do? I have sore knees and my neck is sometimes sore. I want what you're saying, Tony. Where do I? Where do I get this pill?
0: Where do you get it? Well, you, know, you don't. Have, you don't have to saw up your sofas. You know, that's taking it to the extreme. I, I, I just knew. I knew so much at that stage, and I just couldn't be doing that to my kids. But you know, that's a big. That's a huge step for some people, right? And that might mean a communication between not just you. It might be your partner and your kids, right? If you're living in a multi generational home, then there's a lot of people to convince there. But what you can do is take responsibility within the environment that you have and just say well okay let's say if I have to write an email this afternoon why don't I try getting on the ground to write the email if I'm watching Netflix and I'm going into a Netflix binge why not choose other rest positions or getting into a squat and have the kids all squatting right if you want to see these how about we get squatting today to watch it you know there's no harm in that and also setting timers again like 30 minutes is nothing in a 24-hour day, right? And you just set a time. You don't have to do 30 minutes in one hit. It's incremental. So it could be a minute here, right? Two minutes over there, three minutes over there. Throughout your day, your waking day, you put squats in. But there's multiple rest positions. The squat is just one of them. There's kneeling, shin boxing. There's so many different rest positions to play with, really.
1: And what would be the benefit? Like, Because the squatting one sounds great. That's like, okay, cool. I just... Every time I squat, I, I set my timer and I try to get 30 minutes during the day. And like, I haven't done that. I, I, I do squat regularly, but I wouldn't say I time it and do 30 minutes. What would be the benefits? Does it loosen up your hip joints and my...
0: It's, it's more than that. It's, you know, it helps re-educate the base of support, which is the feet, right? The feet are our base of support. And then it creates the appropriate actions in the ankle above that. So you're not only understanding the balance points and the leverage points within your feet... Which organize the feet, but then every decision that's made above that, the way the ankle behaves, and the ankle is an incredibly mobile joint given the chance. And then that creates a stable knee. So it's like a joint by joint approach. So imagine the feet are really stable, right? The ankle can be mobile, the knee can be strong and stable, the hips can be mobile, the pelvis can then be stable, and the spine and the mid back, the mid back, that thoracal spine can be much more mobile and expressive and then the neck can be stable so those sites we were talking about yeah my neck hurts and my ankles my knees my hips that's why because if we don't go back and and offer the appropriate positions we start to then get movement in joints that should be stable and we get more mobility in joints that should be stable and we get more stability in areas that should be mobile yeah so when we talk about core stability we go yeah i'm gonna do my work on my abs to get my core stable uh uh-uh, not if your hips aren't mobile and your mid-back isn't mobile. You're just making yourself stronger at the core stability exercise. You haven't gone into the cause, And the cause is often, we find, is unfortunately the Western form of sitting, which is chair sitting. It compromises all those areas that should be mobile, and it compromises all the areas that should be stable.
1: Wow. So, so can squatting I, is a super move. Can I, can I, like, okay, so I, I remember reading the book Born to Run, and I'm sure many people read it. Um, and it, it was... Yeah, Chris McDougal. And I remember mom telling me you should read this book for years. And I was like, I don't I'm not reading that book, mom. And then then I read a chapter. And then I couldn't put it down for 24 hours and thought, oh, my God, this is the most phenomenal book ever. About, for anyone who hasn't read it, about the Tarahumara uh, tribe in Mexico who used to run ultra marathons every day in kind of very barefoot. um, Sandals. Sandals, in essence. And in many ways, you've become a modern day Tarahumara in lots of ways. Like. You've done some phenomenal feats such as last two three years ago, was it? Or two years ago that you it ran the, yeah, the, full, so the full length of the UK from the very bottom to the very top of Scotland. And we ran one day with you in um, Manchester and was delighted. We were we were flying over to run 24 miles and I was all excited and I'd done some training and I was ready for it. And we were delighted that we were a little bit delayed and we only ran like, I don't know, 10K or 10 miles with you or something, but... It was a phenomenal feat. And for anyone listening, like to hear, not only did you run that distance, but you ran the distance with no shoes. So uh, for anyone listening, how that, who, who, uh, even for me, go, how the hell do you do that? And, and, and is that almost like, so now that we've got the context to your backstory, like, I really understand how how basic natural movement like you really want to be the catalyst to inspire others to move more naturally and obviously running being like a, an incredible natural thing for us as humans and was that kind of part like when, when you tell the backstory it's like oh yeah of course you well not really want to run the whole of the UK barefoot but uh yeah when you say will you tell us about that
0: yeah I think there's I, I think it's more than natural movement it, it became natural lifestyle you know I I'll, I'll get to it. Okay, I will get to it. I, there's, there, I had a gym and the gym was about, we brought in a natural movement philosophy into the gym. And I had one day I was teaching a workshop, but it, the workshop was about um, the fundamentals of human movement. And I'd introduce people then to also other elements like sleep and rest and diet. And how, if this was movement that was natural, how do the other things look in nature? And like, oh, how do, what does sleep look like? What does rest look like? What does eating look like? And so a train blasted through the door, the doors of this building that I'm in. It was a London Scotland Railway building. So we were in an old ticket hall on the tube line with electromagnetic chaos, all kinds of things going on. And I found myself, as it was my business, doing sometimes 16-hour days. So I was there preaching these lifestyle hacks and things we should be doing to get back to being nature. And yet i was in this hugely compromising environment and this train blasted past blasted the doors and blasted me at the same time and i had this huge just kind of wake up epiphany of oh my god you're a fraud and in that moment that was it within a month i i basically bankrupt closed the gym done and um went on a bit of a journey after that to find myself that was my breaking down of the old Tony and stepping into something new. It was an opportunity. It was the first time really I'd taken a proper look of myself in the mirror, you know, in the real honest mirror. And that was when I say I'd broken down all those, the old compromised Tony, the stuff I was talking about that I'd suddenly find myself drawn back into the addictions and all that stuff was suddenly gone. It was an opportunity to just find Tony, the new Tony.
1: And how, how did it just, how did it just go? Because, you know, the way, like, I even see it in ourselves now, like, and, and I've said this a number of times, like, me and Stephen have had 40 years of being busy and being constantly busy. And this year, our kind of, our goal is, right, Steve, our goal this year is to slow down and do less. But it's very difficult to untrain these habits. Like, I find I'm as busy as ever because I just, that's my been my modus operandi. So, like, for you, if you've been kind of dealing with, when this, you know, your modus operandus was to resort to drugs or alcohol when you were feeling a bit crap or a bit lost. Like, how do you just suddenly flick that switch?
0: Well, I think for me, it was more of a breakdown than anything. So, um, you know, we had kids, we had no money, we had nothing, you know, and I'd lost my business. Uh, and I'd lost everything that I thought I'd put myself into my, my, my success, as it were. This was me making a success of something. So the ego took a massive hammering um and the ego is really wrapped up in the business it was my identity at that point so it's very much a breaking down of me like going bankrupt is one thing but it was very much it was a breaking down so i then found beyond the physical self i found more spiritual practices um this was my opportunity to rescue myself and with that came plant medicine and other practices that I, i i found that suddenly was an opportunity to really lift the veil and find out what was going on beneath and it took me very much into those early years. You know, I was saying I had a ceremony, and these boots came up. That's on that journey. It's like very honest. Um, here's the boots. Here's the trauma. This is it. Now, what you're going to go and do with it? You know. And I had that um, moment within a ceremony where that came up. Um, and so in that in that process, I arrived I ride home with Katarina and and just said, I know what I need to do. I need to go. I, I need to go. I'm going to go and run the length of the UK. That was it for me.
1: Did you tell her it was? Did you tell her it was going to be barefoot at that time, or was that did that come later?
0: It was like right. This is this is what I'm doing. I'm going to go and run barefoot. And I had this idea of running with my boots with the bar across them. I was going to take them with me and run from like the southern tip of the UK right to of the mainland, to the northern mainland tip run with my boots and then throw them in the ocean and that was it. I was like, that's what, that's what I'm going to do.
1: So almost like a pilgrimage, like a sense, of, a real rite of passage.
0: Felt like that because I'd had this kind of spiritual rites of passage. I'd had many of them. It was like four years of that, four years of that deep work. It was from the age of 39 to 43 of drinking the spiritual kale, as we know, ayahuasca and smoking toad venom and all these incredible processes of kind of finding myself and getting to the root of what the addictions were. And that, that I mean, that, and one of them was just very much about attachment. It just came up with this, this thing about attachment. You need to be able to let the attachment to everything go. And what was really bizarre, it was like letting go of all the negative stuff, but still all the positive attachments were, remained. You know, it's a very bizarre relationship that when you think about all your attachments leaving you, like an alcohol, there was not even a hint of me wanting a drink ever after one of the ceremonies, like just totally gone. That was unheard of for me, you know. So um I think that that very much pilgrimage. This was like this became more of the run became a physical pilgrimage, a physical, proper rite of passage, like 30 miles every day barefoot, you know. Anyway, I arrive at my parents' house and I say, Oh, yeah, I've got this idea. I'm gonna run from Land's End to Johnny Groats. Where are the boots? Where are my boots with the braces? And my my parents that They've, they're, they're, they've been talking about emptying their loft space for like, well, as long as I'd lived there. And it was like, um, where are they? Oh, well, you never guess what? Your father just a few weeks ago just, we took, we we were going we wouldn't want them anymore, would you? We just decided to take them to the tip. And I was like, no, this is my pilgrimage. Anyway, so we had to let let that side of the story go. And it was the same when we were compiling, um, we're doing a documentary for the latest run. And it was like, you know, be really handy to have some images and photos perhaps of me with club feet and these bars running across and do you have anything well we didn't really take a lot of photos back then you know because we we were we were you know it wasn't something we wanted to um, remember if we're honest (laughs) quite traumatic at the time we didn't think you'd want to know much about it i was like wow okay it's interesting and you could see how much trauma and was around it and how much shock must have been around it at that point. No mon- no wonder it was so traumatic for me, if that was the energy that was around it at the time. So I think that was for me, dismantling that was on the physical level was this run. It was almost like the medicine was telling me well, this is, this is the passage. This is the right of passage to do that. This is what you need to go and do. So that's what it became. And it became 30 miles a day, every single day for 30 days. Um on tarmac, completely butt-naked feet, but an opportunity to really just demonstrate well this was possible. So for me, it felt very much like a platform. And I remember arriving home discussing it with Katarina what I wanted to do, and Greta Thunberg made this speech. Do you remember about um it was at the what was the EU Parliament possibly about.
1: Yeah, I remember it. Yeah.
0: But platform, you know, and the larger the platform, the bigger the responsibility. And this was like, oh my God, I know what, this is great because I know what will happen with this. People are, it's gonna raise people's eyebrows. The socially extreme eyebrow is going to be risen through this. It's a, so, it's a biologically normal thing to do, run barefoot. But for, for us, it's like, wow, you know, this is incredible. How's this dude gonna do this or what a nut job, right? So you kind of get that emotional response. And I knew then it was an opportunity that I knew press would be involved. So I hired someone in PR and we created this story around it. And with that, I could raise awareness for the environment. So I chose environmental um, platforms to raise to raise funds for. Um, and then the next stage was then to um, build the story around it. So it became like this man who was born with club feet is now going to go and do this discipline, and, you know, uh, do the, to take on this mammoth task of running. So Sky News were involved and BBC Breakfast were involved. And most of the big papers were involved but, but it was exactly that. It created the platform. It created a platform to then discuss something very important that was environmental issues. So it became good for Tony's human, but it also became good for the environment at the same time. Can
1: can I ask a question and then uh, to come back to this thing, it was just about like, because people listening might kind of go, okay, well, I've got runners. I've got a really nice hundred euro pair of Nikes and they've got lovely cushioned soles and I was told like, I should wear cushioned soles because they'll protect my feet and my ankles. Like, and that's what most of us have been programmed now until we met you, we were wearing the same type of shoes as everyone else. And within a, a, a number of weeks of meeting you or a couple of times of meeting you, you gave us a pair of barefoot runners and said, Vivo shoes and said, lads, try these on, you know, this is, this is, you know, a step in the right direction. And I remember thinking, uh, people are go, oh, they must be so comfortable. It's like, no, of course they're not. You feel every little stone. It's that's the whole idea. Shoe. And it took weeks to get used to them. So but we've only worn, that's all we've ever worn sen- since. For four years. So you, you kind of immediately got us down to it, straight down this route. But for anyone listening who is wearing a pair of like big rubbery celled runners, which most people do, like what are the, like, is this a bad thing? Are we, are most of us doing it wrong? You know, because I think it's important to understand this before important, you know, you're running. Yeah, it.
0: because it's not, for me, it's not just about throwing away the, the, the boots with braces and it's, and it's not just about the posture. It's about the sensory information that you receive. And we often forget that, you know, these amazing sensorial beings, right? And so um, you have just as many senses in your feet as you do in your hands. So up to 200,000 extra receptors reside in your feet. So that's one thing. So the more information you put between you and your foot, as in the more rubber, um, the more desensitized that information becomes. So therefore the calculations that your movement brain can make are slightly compromised. And if you think back to when I said that running is, biomechanics of running really is about this understanding the forces that are involved to be able to make the appropriate shapes. So you have kinetics, which are the forces and then kinematics are the shapes I make due to those forces. So if I dumb down the information that I receive from the environment, my shapes will be dumbed down and inappropriate for the tasks to deal with the forces to become more efficient and minimize the risk of injury. That's just the senses of the rubberized information, the dumbing down. Anything above three to four millimeters is suggested to dumb down that information. And it would change the transient impact the moment your movement brain gets the signal, the mind-body loop to change shape, so the shape doesn't get the cue it needs to deal with the forces now when we stand or when we squat or we interact with the ground there's one times our body weight in ground reaction forces right um and then when we walk there's one times our body weight it's still the same body weight but when we run through ground reaction forces there's two times our body weight and when we sprint there's three times our body weight so walking um is a different locomotive pattern to deal with that forces and running is a different pattern to deal with the forces that two times body weight and sprinting is a different pattern to deal with those forces. Like a horse will walk, canter, um, trot, gallop to do with forces. So it changes its gait cycle, the same as the human being will. Um, so that's, that's, just, that's just understanding forces. And then we have mechanical actions like the ankle has a heel rocker at that, like a heel rocker an ankle rocker and a forefoot rocker. You have three rocking actions of your foot. When you walk, you should be using, applying all three. You go through the heel to the flat foot and off the big toe. When you run, that's one times your body weight. When you run, two times your body weight, you should be landing flat footed like that to deal with the forces. That's how the springs of the feet and the muscles and the tendons and the bones operate. And then you go off of rocker number three, which is the toe box area of the foot. And then when you sprint, you go on rocker number three, the toe box, because it's no longer appropriate to land on your heel or flat footed. So it's just, that's just forces. And then we have understanding the mechanics of the foot and the shape of the foot and the anatomy of the foot. So you have 33 joints, 26 bones and hundred muscles, tendon ligaments all together. Right. And so to, for that foot to understand its role for all the joints and the bones and the joints, and the bones and the tendons and the muscles to understand their role, the foot has to be in a foot shape as in not a shoe shape, but a foot shape. And a shoe shape, if you look at most modern runners with cushioning that raises the heel, pushes the foot to the front of the shoe because it has a heel, right? It already pushes the foot forward, and the toe box is normally quite narrow. So if you were to draw uh, with a marker, so
1: so toe box refers to just the toe
0: area of the shoe. Yeah. So if you draw around your foot, um, you should notice that the foot, the toe box, is wider than the heel, quite wide, quite. Yeah, there's quite a bit of difference between the toe box and the heel of your foot. The heel being the most narrow point. If you look at most modern runners, for aesthetics, the toe box is often more narrow than the heel. So you have to be able to do something with your foot to get it in there, which usually means putting the toes, compromising toes, squishing all the toes together. Now there's a danger there that the great toe, which there should be a gap between your first toe and your second toe like this, right? Your great toe is four times denser and thicker than all the other toes. It has a role to play within the three rocking actions, right? So when we land on the hill, we roll through and then we go off the big toe. It has a leverage capability, a pivoting capability and an anchor, right? So every one of those rolling actions that I've demonstrated, every rocking action, you should be going off on the big toe. When you create a narrow toe box, the big toe gets pushed in. And people will be familiar with that if they look at someone that's been wearing shoes for many, many years and they grow something very peculiar here. And it's known as a bunion. A bunion is almost like another toe that has to grow because we don't have the big toe anymore. We've lost this and we, we still need leverage. so We start to then roll in. And that's like um, language about supronation and overpronation, you know, overpronation. I like, don't have a big toe anymore. It's not there. It's been pushed over towards the other toes. It is no longer in its location to be able to work as a leverage point. So if that's missing, the ankle will start to roll in and we call that like overpronation. And the overpronation that occurs then in the ankle then creates overpronation in the knee and overpronation upstream. So it's the very foundation of it all should be the super strong foundation being the foot. And so the way to get that back is to rewild the feet, try and get the feet back into their appropriate alignment. You can use things like toe separators or toga,
1: which is like yoga for your feet. Yeah, remember we did that with you one day. I remember I remember doing a toga class, which sounds completely crazy and it was completely crazy. And it was so much fun as well. It was using broomsticks and all sorts of things and trying to use your toes like your hands. Because we tend to forget how agile we are. And as you often say, like putting our toes in kind of our toes or our feet in these big uh, rubbery shoes just disconnects them and just forgets their agility and their mobility. And even one thing just on that is there's a lady who comes into the shop who she was born with no arms and she just uses her feet and they're just like hands. She lifts up her wallet on the counter. She takes out notes drives, with her toes. She pays with it. She picks up her bag she's with her a toes. Painter. She drives she's with her toes in your kind of going okay we can be very good with our toes too we've just never harnessed this skill
0: well there's something else that happens you know with that rubber unfortunately that the rubber's super compliant and the more compliant the surface if,
1: what if does compliant like, mean sorry just for anyone spongy, soft,
0: sp- think of something soft and spongy say you're in the gym and you're on a really rubberized mat Yep. and you jump up and down on the rubberized mat with no shoes on right so or versus you jump up and down on a really stiff, hard floor. So I have really solid floors here, right? If I jump on down on that, who gives the floor or Tony? Tony. So how does Tony give? What does he do? Uses the
1: suspension of his knees and, and his joints. There's a bit of suspension. Yeah. No,
0: you think joints. I think joints play their role in it, but they don't have any shock absorption. Shock absorption comes from other systems like muscles and tendons, right? So they're your shock absorbers. And everyone's familiar with our like ITB, you know, the ITB band along the light, light slide of your leg. We have to rub out and runners' knee comes from that, or the Achilles tendon or the planty surface of your foot. They're all your springs, right? Now, if you jump up and down a hard surface, all those springs go doing, doing. Even the arch of the foot will be doing this. That's, it has an arch when it comes off the ground, and then it's elastic when it loads, it opens doing, doing, like that. <laughs> and the Achilles is like huge elasticity. So the knee or the tendons around the knee and everything that's associated with absorption can deal with 50% shock absorption. Below the knee is the lower extremity. That's the Achilles and the planty surface of the foot deals with the other 50% of shock absorption, right? So that's, that's just that. And then you have your posture above it and that helps mitigate some of that. So I'm jumping up and down on a hard surface. Now I'm going to take that hard surface I'm going to jump up and down on the rubber mat that offers this elastic stuff. Yeah. The cushion bouncy stuff, or put some air cushioning in there. Like just put a big bubble in there, really make it really bouncy. What gives?
1: Shears you. Yeah, the rubbery what, happens,
0: what happens to Tony?
1: Tony yes. becomes rigid.
0: Become rigid and stiff. So all the tendons and the, all those elastic, amazing elastic properties that this organism has spent millions of years evolving into, because that's the adaptation of me that became this hunting persistent animal, has suddenly been wiped out from 90, like the early 1970s, late 1960s, when the first invention of the rubberized cushion trainer came onto the market. Right? And it just so happens that running injuries associated with that have gone like that since that period, right? And, bef- and before
1: nineteen sixty, we were running more in like flat-footed little plimsoll type things. Yeah, but like-
0: also even looking at trail shoes, you know, a lot of those like trail runners, there was a hard, there was still a barefoot community of trail runners. You know, it's still, you know, and even down to like the the pre-trainer times, like the Arthur Lydiard days, who was an amazing track and field coach amazing running coach he used to make his shoes for his athletes you know and he turned more people into Olympians than anyone else's runners and then people like Adidas and Nike came onto the market like Bowman from Nike went over to speak to Arthur Lydiard about what he was doing with his athletes and how they were so successful and Arthur Lydiard was putting 100 miles through his athletes every single week and then and that the reason I know about Arthur Lydiard is this guy came over from Ireland And he was a um, running coach over in Ireland. But he was a a running coach. He had a whole running community. but He was actually an IT consultant and then had this running community that he used to coach. Brilliant. Massive audience. Um, And he used to coach everyone in this Arthur Lydiard model. And he couldn't understand it. He had 22 injuries when he arrived at my door. This is when I had my gym in London. He knocks on the door and he's a Danish guy who's living in Ireland. And he just said, you know, I don't understand. I've got these twenty-two running injuries. I'm just doing what the program is of Arthur Lydiot. How come he could put hundred miles through his athletes? You know, and I was like, yeah, but you're looking at the forties and fifties. Right? People just, just their behaviour and their lifestyle was so different. Right? We're not talking about someone sitting behind a desk for ten hours a day, rubber necking and looking down at a keyboard. You know, changing their whole shape and then putting rubberized shoes on and going running. What was he doing? And it was like, it's under, it's a light bulb moment for this guy. Anyway, we've been six weeks we dealt with all his injuries they'd all gone just by rewilding his posture rewilding his feet and then getting him into barefoot technology which he now coaches and coaches to all his runners so i had a stint over in ireland in glendalock for a period of time coaching fell runners over there in this model he had like the arthur Lydiard model and i had the the skill of running the actual technique of running we were putting that out to the fell running community and having amazing results of it you know, one of the guys winning um, the Carental race a few times and becoming king of the mountains. I met John Lenahan, who's like really famous over there as being king of the mountains for so many years that they even changed the course because no one could beat him. And his origins were amazing. He came, grew up on a dairy farm and he used to have to run next to the truck as a boy and he used to run from farm to farm, you know. So you had this incredible engine for running. And his half marathon in the mountains was like 60 six minutes or something which was completely insane but an amazing (laughs) engine and talking about natural movement he had a whole wild gym set up in his on his farm like climbing ropes and jumping over things just again very different very different approach understanding that it's not just mileage we went down this path where we thought it was just mileage
1: right so 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 posture has a massive posture has a massive component in terms of natural movement as does natural movements such as squatting and all our natural physiology, as in, as you mentioned, sitting in chairs, hunching over screens, you know, all the natural habitats, sofas, soft beds, all this type of thing. And then, and, uh, okay, I don't know where I was To to, to apply this back to anyone listening who's going, Tony, everything you're saying is brilliant, I want some of this. Like, so some basic take-homes. Number one, if I'm standing at, if I'm at a desk all day in a hunched over position and, Try standing up at a desk or an ironing board I've seen you all what recommend what do we do like nice what do we do it, we're all most I'd say nearly everyone listening is what you you've referred to as an urbanite. like because we're all we live yeah. in a modern world if, if you're listening to this it's on world. some piece of technology exactly so what do we do how do we start making steps towards this
0: okay so you know there's there's lots of mashups you can be doing so rather than give you more to do in your day it's best to give you something to mash up within your day you your already your already daily habits. say for instance i had to drive for four hours to get here where we are in yorkshire and that meant stopping along the way getting out the car holding the door frame and the seat and just squatting having a walk around then getting back in the cab again to drive again right just to just to try and put some chair care in or at least offset some of that chair sitting chair sitting offsetting there you go (laughs) same in the chair if you're setting a timer you know it could be a minute at the end of every hour, you just get up, you move around the back of your chair, you hold your desk and you do a few squats and you go off walking again. Um, You can set a standing desk up, but understand this, that standing with poor posture is just as detrimental as sitting with poor posture. So the key is to really find habits within your habitat that are gonna help feed that. Squatting is one, other ground rest positions are another. I have a whole thing on chair, um, chair care or chair sitting offsetting on my tutorials. There's a squat tutorial there. There's a rewilding your feet tutorial, all that will help, but it's trying to think, right, how can I do it? And become more of an opportunist within your day. So it's more playful. Don't see it as a chore. It's like, oh, wow, that's quite interesting. Let's, let's, let's see what it feels like to have dinner on the floor this evening. You have a picnic outside in the park, try and do it in your house, right? It's just, and it just gets you away from the chair. So it doesn't become the dominant sitting posture that will then compromise the rest of your postures throughout the day can be brushing your teeth have a go at balancing on one leg while brushing your teeth can you do it right? can you organize the head the chest and the pelvis above one segment because running is just a series of single-legged hops like you're balancing on one leg at 180 beats per minute that's what you do and you have to organize all of that structure above it in that microsecond ding 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 and off you go so can you organize can you do it for a longer period of time just brushing your teeth simple right if you're waiting for the kettle to boil hold the kitchen top squat stand up squat stand up squat stand up it's resetting everything will help reset the behavior of the ankle the knee and the hip if you do it that way throughout the day don't think to yourself that we do an hour's exercise that doesn't exist in nature again it's incremental it's just punctuated everywhere throughout the day you just have these windows of opportunity try and move as often as you can rather than oh i have to hit the map for an hour nothing wrong in doing it doing it that way but think is that hour yeah, enough to bit. mitigate? The rest of the poor posture throughout the day you know very so if, the, if you have to write an email like i'm on the ground now we're just sitting doing a podcast for an hour or so i'm on the ground the whole time i change position i'm changing position constantly and that's wow. the difference between being on the ground and being in a chair you'll get cues there'll be little cues to say oh you know guys it's getting, it's getting a bit uncomfortable now time to change shape rather than when we're sitting in a chair we kind of you exit the physical self you notice that it kind of goes yeah cerebral and you just go mm-hmm you just become
1: a human brain yeah, exactly you that a body. And your body is just to carry your brain around
0: you know we talk about being grounded right and 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 that's the point being grounded isn't just oh taking your shoes off and going on the grass it's taking yourself to the ground getting in the physical body and if you're into meditation play more with the ground because it will help you in the meditation because your physicality will be stronger to be able to hold you in the meditation you know you don't start to get those mid-back aches. There's other practices like, like hanging really help that, like just oh, hanging yeah, the bar that. and gripping the bar because it will help lift the ribcage. And then that helps then not just help the upper posture. It helps the whole respiratory system. You know, we can get more absorption on board if the rib cage and the upper body is organized appropriately. You know, and then the overlap then is, of course, into running with that also, you know.
1: Even listening to this, I'm so conscious that, geez, I've been sitting in this chair for an hour, like an hour and a bit, like, oh, oh my God, I need to move. This is amazing, Tony. It really is. There's, There's one thing that I'm twitching to ask you about. And like, I know we're like, naturally, we've got a great place to end here. But there's something which I like, I've been into this for a while. It was back about a year ago. Someone was talking to me about like becoming a nasal breather. And well, what I, does I, that mean? Nasal, nasal breather. So, okay, so I think it was you planted the seed. You had said that your daughter said your mouth was for eating and your nose was for breathing. I'm sure you sowed the seeds a year or two ago or whatever, but it was only, only probably about a year ago. Someone mentioned, I was running, maybe it was a year and a half ago. Someone mentioned their dad used to tape their mouth going to sleep because it was to train them to sleep during their nose and he had a lot of asthma and that's what lots of Thank asthma you. societies said to do. Thank so you. I went I went to the store and I bought to the uh, chemist and I bought some zinc oxide tape he said that was really good so every night for about six months I used to tape my mouth closed which was weird and Sab thankfully thought that that was fine and she used to laugh at me and it was grand and I used to wake up and some nights I'd have my mouth open and I'd be and the tape would be all over the bed like and and it was all to train myself to be a nasal breather because how I'd understood it is once you breathe through your nose, it's much more efficient. Your body functions better. Your blood pressure is better. Your cholesterol's better. You are like your, your body functions much better as a nasal breather. And then I've also heard I'd met a couple of people over the last number of years who run just breathing through their nose. And I'd love to know more about nasal breathing. Can you talk about your experience with this and about the benefits of it and your own journey to becoming a nasal breather? Dun, dun, dun.
0: Yeah, I mean I, it's great because I've been writing about this, so I'm really like, on it. And, like, nasal breathing, as well as experiencing it. Of course, um, the last event I did was the the Three Bear Peaks. So that was the three peaks, the three highest peaks of the UK, and then the mileage in between. And normally you would drive the miles in between. So you do it in 24 hours, and you climb Snowdon, drive to Scarfield Pike, climb that, and then climb, and then drive to um ben nevis and you do it in 24 hours and i i i just like, you know i'm gonna i'm gonna run it let's just run it and then we discovered then as i decided that's what i wanted to do that there was a record there and um at the lands and the pre in the run before that lands in john of groats i'd already started nasal breathing but I, I hadn't kind of taken it so seriously i just oh let's just nasal breathe and i realized i was getting i was more efficient that's what i just knew it just felt better you know it's like oh this is much better i feel i feel much more efficient for it and then i'd go off in like meditations and i'd find that i was suddenly off there somewhere because of just the rhythms of it when it came to three bear Peaks, it was more it was less um more about performance i had to really tune in because i was i was aiming for a record right trying to beat this nine days 11 hours and 18 minutes and i wanted to beat so kind of how to do that so it really meant kind of refining stuff it meant doing more mileage in training so i had to do two marathons a day I'll give you an example it's two marathons a day for nine days plus three mountains that i ran barefoot right? and so it every second counts with stuff like that right so it's all right okay i'm gonna get my food on point and then i'm gonna get this on point but if i'm out there for two marathons sometimes i might not be able to eat so let's try and see if how long we can go without eating and I started to really go down the rabbit hole with the nasal breathing. I did exactly that. I taped my mouth up and I started to go out and just do the mileage. And, you know, and it started off. With, the, with great, the tape
1: with the tape on your tape, mouth going running.
0: Tape and I'd gone from, um, I'd gone from doing 10 minute, I'd gone from eight minute miles, mouth breathing and nasal breathing, whatever I was doing, whatever the breathing was, I didn't really pay much attention. I might've even been nasal breathing, right? And a bit of mouth breathing or doing whatever, but this was more right, precise. It's about precision now. So I taped my mouth up at the very beginning And I found that I was, uh, I'd gone from eight minute miles down to 10 minute miles, like quite a shift. And so it's trusting the process. You have to really trust the process. For most runners, it's like, oh, I'm not not losing my mind a minute per mile. But it's the same as technique. Once, if you refine it, you know, the rewards come and you want to be able to run forever. That's the longevity. You don't want to be broken just trying because you don't want to lose your minute miles, right? And not change anything. It should be about refinement. Life's experience is about refining things, right? so running is very much like that for me and the nasal breathing was that and it was like right let's tape it up let's trust the process respect it be patient and it will be right? exactly how it has to be and i found then i got back down down to eight minute miles but something really remarkable was happening within that is i wasn't needing fuel and water you know i'd go out and do a marathon before breakfast like just wake up and
1: as you do, do like
0: mobility drills on the floor get back in the posture mobilize the feet do some jumping drills to rewild everything in a way the form and then off i'd go and i'd go and do eight minute miles again come home right now i'm gonna have some water and now i'm going to eat and then when you start to do when what i've been researching lately is that you know you lose 42 percent of your hydration your water through vapor through mouth breathing so we're all like chronically dehydrated if we're walking around mouth breathing, right? No wonder we have to drink so much water all the time? I mean, we've also gone from like a liter to two liters to three liters, the recommendations, it keeps going up. And we're, we're losing 42% of water through mouth breathing. That's insane, right? And then you have the metabolism, but there's something else that's happening with nasal breathing. So you have to remember that it stimulates nitric oxide, and nitric oxide is associated with vasodilation and bronchial dilation. So you lower the blood pressure, you lower heart rate, but also you become much more efficient at absorption with oxygen through the lungs, right? Bronchial dilation. So there's, it's multifaceted. But when you really go down the rabbit hole, of course, you then start to look at... Have you read Breathe by James Nestle? Uh, yeah, I
1: bought it for Justina for Christmas. I haven't read it. She read I, read, it I, read the, I read the Blinkist, the 15-minute version of it.
0: It's brilliant. So he goes into... Which you know, said to
1: breathe through your nose. That was the 15 years. He has his version. nose
0: plugged up, and he, so he has to become a mouth breather. So he's done the opposite. Rather than tape his mouth and become a nose breather, he puts himself, a bit like the McDonald's guys, Yeah, I'm going to eat loads of McDonald's for 30 days. James Nestor knows about nasal breathing, yet he still puts himself through the process. What I love about the story. And so it's then logging the details of what happened. So of course, he gets all the things that are associated in the West, like high blood pressure and you know heart rate but low temperature and um his cognitive functions off and becomes very 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 cloudy in his thoughts and then of course they then unplug him and put him back to a nasal breather and things start to regulate again but there's also a study in there around monkeys where they plug the noses of the monkeys up and make them mouth breathers poor monkeys have to go through the process of course and yes that's that's what we have done as humans experimented on animals but in this instance they discover that the faces of the monkeys change. Yeah, you know deformities in their jaws and their mouths and their teeth and their faces become longer and their eyes more drawn. And then it's like, okay, so let's unplug the monkeys, and then within six months the monkeys return back to their normal monkey cells, right? But then if you go down the rabbit hole further, there's there's um, um, the work of Weston Price, and he was this dentist within the 20s, 30s, 40s, We're really really renowned, right? Canadian guy, really renowned. And he looks indigenous populations again, right, to how it looks in nature. And how is it that these indigenous cultures have the most amazing teeth and jaw structures? What is it they're doing? And he identifies that they're nasal breathers, they're not mouth breathers. But he then identifies that within certain generations, they've introduced more white flour and sugar, and it's created more inflammation, which then has transformed them into mouth breathers. So as much as we go down the path of discussing becoming nasal breathers and taping our mouths up, that's often symptom relief. We have to sometimes go into the cause, what made us all turn into a bunch of mouth breathers? You know, there's, it can be shock, it can be emotional stuff that comes in because it's emotional response to breathe through our mouth. It's more fight and flight response. Um, But there's also inflammation that can be in there. So it's, do you tape up your mouth and just ignore the inflammation to return you back to a nasal breather? So hopefully, reconfigure your face and end up with that amazing indigenous smile. Or do you feel possible,
1: <laughs> I've always you wanted make- an indigenous smile, Tom.
0: <laughs> yeah, to too. Such a little mouth. <laughs> um, you know, or do you, or do you, or do you then deal with information and tape your mouth up and become super efficient? Right. I mean, it's just just looking at a much bigger picture at play, you know, than just taping your mouth up. You know, I find.
1: So, so I guess there's inherent curiosity in this because I know myself that there's... I'm very curious about nasal breathing and it kind mm. of... Like I'm drawn towards it and in, I think you probably sown the seeds initially and I've been playing with it and also like as you say, there's like taping up my mouth might be one part of it and there might be inflammation and other things but I guess... Yeah, it's just fascinating. I just find it amazing. I'm-
0: it's incredible. And then and then understand where you can take it. And, I, you know, I, again, I put that running experience, I, I think it's way beyond a physical experience. I think very much like we, you brought up the Tarahumara earlier, right? The Tarahumara. And they are, they are running peoples. You know, they're always trying to refine their, improve their technique and refine things over time and over time. And I find that that's what I'm I'm kind of doing with my running experience or my lifestyle experience is trying to find more and more ways that are more in sync with human biology that are refining my human experience. And the ultimate expression of that for me seems to be my running. It seems to be that's, that's my human's potential is to run. And so for me to keep taking on these amazing modalities that are just enhancing that. And nasal breathing has been one of those really amazing ones for just taking running, again, beyond physical into some. Sometimes more spiritual realms. It's much like much more like a meditation for me now, reaching those realms through breath. Because there's tempos within the breath as well, you know, that you can play with. So I've been playing with like a
1: and is I'm that going, a yeah. is that 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 cause I like I went I saw on Instagram that that's what you were doing. It was like, and the other night I went for a one, I knew we were chatting, so I said, Okay, I'm gonna go for a one kilometer run and just nasal breathe. And I just stopped twice during the one kilometer and pretend i wasn't out of breath because i'm a fit young man um and then and then i also realized like i had to keep breathing much deeper it was like and run a little slower so i wondered like it is more that and, and also it's hard to have a conversation i know we were running me dave and sarah we were we were trying to go for a little run uh in between a break back a while ago and i remember we couldn't talk and we just no. sat about three times. It was like, oh, this isn't as much fun. We normally have good crack or good laughs. Chatting, but, but,
0: but that's a different run. You know, that's a social run. And Don't worry about things like nasal. But nasal breathing is one of those things where you you literally to nasal breathe. You can't talk because talking, we mouth breathe, right? You know, we we talk a lot as a species, right? That might be another example. Not just the inflammation. It's just the information that we want to we want to share, right? So, um, but I I do feel that. Yeah, I I think you have to allow the breath to determine the pace, right? So if you're pushing too hard, your mouth breathes. you know, Mm -hmm. so just rather than stop, just try and contain yourself, try and drop the pace. We we were discussing, you know, this is carried into all life. Maybe you need to, you know, allow breath to determine the pace of all life and slow things down. You know, you can be dropping things by 10%, taking the pace out of life by 10%, but do that to your run to begin with. Slow things right down, but not the cadence. The cadence remains the same, you know, the pulling cycle, right? Between 176 and 180 beats
1: Cadence per is the rhythm, isn't it? The
0: yeah, like the tick, 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 each foot. But that's not your cue to put your foot down. So if you ran with a metronome and you set it for 180 beats per minute, and you had this ding, ding 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 one, two, one, two, one, two to pull. Don't put your foot down, pull your foot up on that pet on that beat. And then try and cue your breath. with the beat you know and that's and you start to bring those it in. it comes like a yeah. dance Sounds it like does amazing. man it really really amazing tuning in the so
1: dancing runner amazing. tony riddle i love him
0: yeah, if you want to go out there for say um you know two hours and do a two-hour trot don't obsess with speed just go out and treat it i'm going to go and meditate for two hours now i'm going to go and really try and refine everything within my being within my running style and really impure, improve the efficiency of it and minimise the risk of injury within it. Because I you love think that, that. It's, it's our primary locomotive position, or has been for many, many years. So it's important to refine that. You know,
1: you are absolutely amazing, Tony. Like I'm, I'm going running later, <laughs> and I'm going running tomorrow. Like really, I, I'm, I'm going to conquer this nasal breathing. No, no, I No, no, no. I'm going to go ten percent less, you, David. Uh, no, but I, I am. I really do want to start running more. So Tony Riddle, um, where can people find out more? You're an inspiration, human. I could chat to you for about three hours and I have to respect that we can't do that this time. But yeah, where can people find out more? I know one, you've been talking about a book that you're going to do for years and I, for one, really look forward to it and other places that people can And I know more you've got it. a tribe. You've got an online tribe because I know for you, community is a huge thing and you've got a natural tribe that...
0: Yeah, that's... That's the cult we're growing. We're growing the oh, cult. that's your cult. Oh, yeah, that's your cult. Yeah. Sorry. And they all get issued with dry robes. They're the new saffron robes. <laughs> very
1: good. Uh,
0: very good. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's the NatLife tribe. So NatLife tribe is very much that. It's a community of like-minded people who are looking to refine their human experience. That's what that's about. So we have like three movement sessions a week tapping into the... The movement and mobility, lots of squatting in their ground resting positions, but there's also protocols within that. So that's three of those a week. And then we have a weekly chat, which is really lovely. That's like a proper community chat and a chicken.
1: it's like a Tony Tony Thurman.
0: And yeah, exactly. And that. that's, that's on your
1: that. website. People can find out about that on your website.
0: That's where I get everyone along and they all have to buy me a Rolls Royce and lots of gold watches. <laughs> and,
1: uh, <sighs> Good Just will those
0: Osho, Osho vibes in. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then I have Vimeo. There's a Vimeo channel there as well. So most of those, any of those sessions go into an archive. And so anyone that joins gets all the previous material. It's all there so they can access it any moment. So any session that goes on, you don't even have to attend it. You know it's there so you can go back and see it. You Don't miss anything. Um, along with that, I have some tutorials that you can find on my website as well, tonyriddle.com. And then on Instagram at the Natural Lifestyleist. And book coming out soon.
1: The we'll book's in The book, With like, Penguin Life, you've signed with Penguin Life, isn't it? Our yeah. P- like we Life, we you? yeah who with, we work with, with too. which are amazing. Lily. Oh, yeah. brilliant, brilliant. Emily and Julia, great folk.
0: Yeah. So that's been that's been that's been some journey. That's been many years. You know, I was discussing that back in Klondoklin. Klondoklin? Yes, i Yeah, yeah, yeah. Klondoklin? Clondalkin.
1: Yes. Clondalkin. Yeah.
0: So back to those days, yeah. So that's now happening, which is great. I'm really excited about that. So that's covering yeah. movement and play, and eating and drinking, and indoor and outdoor living,
1: and sleep. Um, sleep. There's and rest. there's so much I feel like we could talk about because I know there's loads of topics. But I, I there thought that the, was a wonderful intro to the the vastness and the. Just wonderful, Tony Riddle, the world. Of. Yeah, because your your constant growth and your thirst for knowledge is amazing. Like your constant evolution, it it inspires me. And of course, your accomplishments. So you know, if I, like I definitely want to talk again about community and how you raise parent, your kids yeah. and sleep. Those are sleep could be a great but, one to get in there. Sleep yeah, yeah. Related. But I don't want to open those those boxes now because we could be here for no because
0: podcast in itself isn't it really yeah 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 yeah, Yeah. because
1: i've been reading a lot about that recently so yeah let's definitely do that again but that was amazing that was wonderful i'm as i said i'm going running tomorrow thank you tony riddle thank you so much you're amazing beautiful i don't know about you but i certainly feel greatly inspired to go squat and go start nasal breathing on my runs right away so without further ado we're off for a run wishing you a great day ahead thank you for listening Thank you for being part of this community and please let us know on social media, you know, who, what guests we should get in the future, what you thought. Yeah, uh, what you got out of this, like really, because I, I found that super inspiring. I really, really did. So thanks for attention if you made it this far. We are extremely grateful. We genuinely are and we hope you're getting as much out of these podcasts as we are. So yeah. Cheers. Cheers.